Thank you so much, Dr. Doctory, and for each of you for the privilege of being here. And it's always an honor to be back on campus at Southwestern. Uh, but even a greater honor at this season of life to be able to represent the desire and passion of our Lord to be exalted and praised among all the nations and peoples of the world. It, it would uh, uh, be difficult to even begin to share the impression of having the privilege of being in a position to have a global overview of what God is doing around the world. When it becomes, people become aware that I've traveled 157 countries, I'm often asked the question, well, which was your favorite? The answer is easy, the last one. I mean, you get back, I mean, it's still fresh. You just see the, the need and what God is doing and can just project being there, working with our missionaries and national believers to, uh, to evangelize a lost world. But uh, in many travels, uh, clearly one of the greatest impressions that I continue to live with was the last official overseas trip. I was accompanying a media team uh, going to what we call the pockets of lostness, those darkest places still unengaged that have never heard the name of Jesus. We ended our tour in Central Asia a place when I became president, I never heard about. In fact, my first trip to Central Asia, uh, my itinerary uh, was all worked out by staff and I found myself going to Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan and Tajikistan and Azerbaijan, all those places. I had no clue where I was going. I didn't even know what part of the world it was. It was like a veil of the Soviet Union had obscured this whole area from our awareness. And now I was there 16 years later, <clears throat> and seeing churches had been planted and were multiplying among what I was told, 23 of the largest, most prominent cultural language groups of Central Asia, hearing the gospel for the first time. Well, Zane Pratt, our speaker on Tuesday, was regional leader, and I was just about to burst with pride and praise at what God was doing and then I asked the wrong question. I said, well, how many people groups in Central Asia have yet to be engaged with a gospel witness? And Zane lowered his head. He didn't immediately reply. Uh, I thought he was thinking, calculating an answer, but he knew. When he looked up, tears had filled his eyes. His voice was choked with emotion. He said, Jerry, we can identify over 300 distinct language, cultures, and peoples of Central Asia that have yet to even hear the name of Jesus. And I'll never forget his next statement. He said, you know, the most difficult thing being responsible for our Southern Baptist work in this area of the world is every year as we gather with our personnel for strategic planning, having to determine which of these people groups will be deprived of the gospel yet another year due to our limited personnel and resources. Not which ones we're going to reach next, but which ones will be deprived yet another year of hearing the gospel. And how many multitudes of them will die before they ever hear the good news of the one who died for them. And I came back from that trip with a conviction and impression that has continued to formulate my heart and my life and my influence 
By what criteria should any people be denied access to the gospel of Jesus Christ when God has blessed us so richly in numbers and resources and the potential of taking the good news of Jesus Christ to a lost world? Just the number of people in this room could make a critical impact on the lostness of our world today if we were available to be used of God. Uh, you've heard the text that I'm going to focus on today uh, from John 3.16, a passage that I wish God had never included in his inspired word because it pierces my heart with conviction every time I read it. Whoever has this world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? You know, I often say to churches, and certainly would be applicable here at the Texas Baptist College and Southwestern Seminary, I doubt that there's anyone here that doesn't clearly understand our mission as God's people and the mission of God's holy word. Uh, there's no one here that has not heard the Great Commission. Probably the most prominent verse of Scripture we know is Southern Baptist next to John 3.16, to go and make disciples of all nations. But it's amazing that <coughs> even knowing what our mission is and understanding the urgency of that mission, after all, we understand the eternal destiny of those who never come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And most of a lost world have never done that because they've never heard the news of Christ and how to believe and to follow him and to be saved. But many, even here, probably like a number of people that I encounter, after every missionary commissioning service, we always made an appeal for others to consider joining them and open their hearts to the call of God. And invariably, very few times, if any, someone would come up to me afterwards and say, well, Dr. Rankin, I would be willing to go as a missionary, but God has not called me. Now, Dr. Doctory, I never learned to how to respond to that tactfully. You know, what I would usually say, excuse me, do you have the same Bible I have? To whom do you think the Great Commission was given? Just a handful of disciples on a hillside in Galilee? Just an elite few of all of Southern Baptists that choose to go as foreign missionaries. You know, when we finally reached 5,000 missionaries, a kind of an elusive goal that we'd had for, for many years, that was represented 0.03% of Southern Baptists. Not even 1%, not even one-tenth of 1%. One out of 3,000, and we called it Bold Mission Thrust to reach the nations. But we know the gospel. We know the mission. We understand the urgency of the mission. You know, it wasn't just an afterthought, having completed his redemptive task, ready to ascend to the Father Jesus, gathered his disciples and said, oh, by the way, it just occurred to me, why don't we go and make disciples of other nations as well. No, it was a mission that was born in the heart of God before the foundation of the world. So it's not a matter of understanding our mission or even the urgency of the mission, 
but it's the motivation for going and being a part of fulfilling that mission. I want to attribute some of my comments and the insights uh, to share with you, Dr. Henry Blackaby, such a blessing to travel with him for many years, and he was sharing insights into to this whole issue, and he said, you know, Jesus knew once he had died and rose again that he would be ascending to the Father, that this was his task for which he had come. But the mission of making that known to a world was to be relinquished to his disciples and others who would follow them. And see, he said, if you read the gospel's accounts of Jesus' time with his disciples and his dialogue and mentoring, you can kind of get the perspective that he was preparing them to be motivated and to understand the mission that he would be uh, delegating to them. And he said, you know, as Jesus gathered his disciples, the first imperative was follow me. But once they had chosen to follow him, and I hope you're here today because you have made that decision to respond to that call to follow him. He then didn't tell them, now be witnesses to the ends of the earth and go and disciple the nations. No, the earliest command we find in those sessions of dialogue and training was the command to look. To look. Early in his ministry, the fourth chapter of John, as he was talking to the woman at the well, the disciples had been into the city to buy food and they, they came back and Jesus said, say not here there yet four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields for they are white already unto harvest. He commanded them to look, to open their eyes, to see the people around them, to see the world as God sees them, to see the lostness, because they would never be motivated to go or do anything about it until they, they saw the fields, the need, the lostness of people without Jesus Christ. On that trip to Central Asia, uh, I remember talking to one of our personnel who taught at a technical school in Uzbekistan, in the city of Nakus, among the Karl Kapak people. And he shared with me that uh, the school had a very auspicious school song. I don't know how the, how the hat went, but the words were something like, the name of the school was the center of Nakus. Nakus was the center of Karl Kapak land. Karl Kapak land was the center of Uzbekistan. And Uzbekistan was the center of the world. Now, it's never probably occurred to you that Uzbekistan is the center of the world. Now, geographically, it may be the center of the land masses of the world, but that's not your world. Your world is where you live, it's where your family is, where your work, where your ministry is. That is your world. But the world that, that God knows and loves and died to save isn't just our world of steeple churches and expressways and shopping malls and parched brown lawns and beautiful homes uh, in Texas. It's a world of refugees fleeing war-torn countries like Ukraine and Syria. It's, it's those who are suffering disasters like the earthquake in Turkey. It's the multitudes, literally more than a billion people who live in unreached people groups in darkness, never knowing there's a light that's shown, never knowing that there's hope beyond what they know now. That's the world that God loves and calls us to save. 
but we'll never go to that world. We'll never respond to the need to fulfill God's mission until we're willing to open our eyes and look beyond the egotistical provincialism of our own little comfortable world and see a world that's hurting and suffering and lost in sin that needs Jesus. And so he commanded his disciples to look. But note that he, he commanded them to look and see the fields white unto harvest. We need to see a world in which God is working today. When we read about wars and ethnic violence and Muslim terrorism, economic uncertainty, strained international relations, natural disasters, God is using it as sovereign over the nations to turn the hearts of people to search for something that will give hope and security that can be found only in Jesus Christ. I've been sharing in classes this week this amazing fact from historical perspective. There has been more progress to fulfill the Great Commission and reach the nations, disciple the nations, engage people with the gospel for the first time in your generation since we entered the 21st century than in all the last 200 years of modern missions. We live in a time that God is moving to fulfill his missions and he's called us to join him in that task. It's like the prophet Haggai said, God will shake the heavens and earth, overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. God is moving in sovereignty and power to fulfill his mission. And he's saying to us, open your eyes, look beyond the headlines and see a world in which God is work, working and calling us to be a part of it. But even after commanding his disciples to look, Jesus still didn't shift, said, now go and, and reap the harvest. Be witnesses to a lost world. Go and plant churches, disciple the nations. No, the next command I want to call your attention to is later in his ministry, in fact, toward the end of his ministry, as he and his disciples were gathered in the upper room, and he said, a new commandment I given to you, really wasn't new, but he identified it as a commandment, something that wasn't optional, that you love one another even as I have loved you. The commandment to love. Short time later, a young Pharisee asked him a question, what is the greatest commandment? Now, every time I read that, I know it's not appropriate to second guess our Lord Jesus Christ, but I, I just wonder. I would thought he would have responded, well, go and make disciples of all nations. I mean, isn't that the greatest commandment you could have? But that's not what he answered. He responded by quoting Deuteronomy 6, 5, that the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. And then he hastened to say, but the second is likened to it, love your neighbor as yourself. And just so there would be no misunderstanding, he told the story of the Good Samaritan to illustrate that neighbor that we're to love are not those that we live in our community and fellowship with that look like us, but are people of other races and ethnicities. They're our neighbor in humanity, and we're to, to love them. Why the great commandment, as we call it? Because the great commandment tells us to love others. And someone has appropriately said the great commandment and great commission are inextricably linked because we'll never be motivated to fulfill that commission of our Lord to disciple the nations until we love them. 
And you say, well, it's not natural to love people we've never even heard of, never even seen. Can't even pronounce the name of the people group. Uh, no, it's not. But it is God's nature to love them, and he does. And that's why we are commanded to love God with all our heart and mind. So the love of God to the lost nations and peoples of the world will flow through our hearts out of our love to God until he, we begin to love them. And another reason for that command is the fact that love makes possible the phenomenon of sacrifice, a willingness to give your life for the beloved, for those you love. You love your family, you love your children, you care for them, you provide for them, you sacrifice, do what is necessary, provide for their welfare. Well, what about a lost world? Do you love a lost world? Jesus knew until his disciples obeyed the command to love, they would never go and they'd never fulfill the, the mission of, of God. I don't remember a lot from my seminary classes, but professors take heart. I want to set, tell the students, you will remember some things. And one thing that I remember is reading a book on evangelism by Dr. J. E. Conant because it made a statement that jumped out and grabbed my attention, my heart, and I've never forgotten it. He said, the Great Commission is sufficient authority to send us after the lost, but it's not sufficient motivation. Well, that gave me pause. Wouldn't every believer be conscientious about doing what our Lord explicitly commanded us to do? But he goes on and explains it's not the authority of an external command, even of our Lord, that sends us after the lost, but it's the impulse of an indwelling presence. And you see, it's only when we come into a relationship with God until we recognize we're just sinners saved by grace, that we were once lost in sin, that gives us a new life that compels us to want others to know what we have experienced in knowing Jesus Christ is a compulsion to fulfill the commission of our Lord. But even after Jesus told his disciples to look and to love, he still didn't command them to go out and disciple the nations or be witnesses to the ends of the earth. In fact, uh, Coming back to the Great Commission, if you're familiar with the grammar of that passage, which I hope you are, you know that there's only one active, transitive, imperative verb in the passage, and it's not go, it's make disciples, to make disciples. All the other verb forms are participles. Well, how do you make disciples? By converting, witnessing, winning, baptizing, represented by baptizing, and then teaching and discipling. Uh, all that Jesus commanded. Well, how do you make disciples of the nations? Obviously, by going. You've got to get there. You've got to get the gospel to them. But it's not a command, as we often quote it. We're commanded to go. No, it's a participle. What Jesus is literally saying is, as you are going, make disciples, baptize, teaching. He commanded us to live in a way that our lives are a witness, always sharing the gospel, bringing people into the kingdom and discipling them and reaching a lost world. Okay, you Greek professors, I'm going to acknowledge that I do understand an, 
a participial adverb does take on the authority and power of the verb it's modifying. So if make disciples is a commandment, then our going to make disciples of the nations carries that same authority and power. But we don't go because we're commanded. We go because we're compelled by our experience of knowing him, of being born again, redeemed, and have a passion and compulsion that everyone would know him. So let's return to my text. 1 John 3.17, whoever has this world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? It closes with a question, but actually it confronts us with four questions. What do you have? Do you have this world's goods? Well, I've been where you are today. Most of you would say, well, I certainly don't have this world good. In fact, I still work in full-time, part-time, trying to go to seminary, make ends meet in my budget. Uh, but there's no one here probably that has a, doesn't have a, a roof over their head, food to eat, and clothes to wear like most of the people of our world. God has blessed us materially. But what's the greatest good you can have in this world? It's to know Jesus Christ, your salvation. There's no material benefit or blessing that is greater than that. And that's what you have, what the world needs. The greatest good you could have in this world. Well, the second question then, what do you see? Do you see your brother in need? That's not your uh, flesh and blood brother, but it's your brother in humanity, the people that live around you. And most of us would immediately think of the homeless in the inner city, people more destitute and unfortunate, living in poverty, the images of television of people suffering and oppressed uh, around the world. But what greater need does anyone living today, our brother in humanity need than the need for Jesus to know God? Do you see him? Do you see the multitudes, the lostness? Yes, they're here, but around the world, those that have no opportunity to know and hear. So the third question then is implied. What do you have? What do you see? What do you give? In other words, what do you do about it? How do you respond to the lostness and people within need of the gospel, something that you have and can provide for them? Or as the scripture implies, do you close your heart, some translations say the heart of compassion against them? How do you respond to the gospel? I remember when the IMB began to focus on unreached people groups and there was just this massive appeal for more laborers and missionaries to go and appeal to churches to pray and to call out those who would go that we could reach those that have yet to hear the gospel. And I remember getting a letter from a gentleman who had a prayer ministry and he just said, I pray for you, Dr. Rankin. I pray for international mission boards. I pray for our missionaries systematically. And I've been reading about more laborers, more missionaries being needed. And I, I just uh, have led to pray Matthew 9, 38, where Jesus said, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers into the harvest. And he said, tell me, Dr. Rankin, why isn't God answering my prayers? Why isn't he calling out the laborers that are needed to extend his kingdom and to reach a lost world? 
Well, I didn't know how to respond. I'd been wondering the same thing myself. And I happened to read an article by a 19th century mission leader that spoke to that very question of why more laborers and more missionaries are not going. He said, it's not because God is not calling out the laborers, but the laborers are not responding because of a closed mind or a calloused heart or a reluctant will. Now, if you've been born again as a child of God and are here sensing God has called you to serve him in Christian ministry, I think it's an obvious question. Why is it that you've never considered going where the need is greatest, to a lost world where people have never heard the gospel? Is it because your mind is closed to the possibility that you just don't feel qualified, you're not inclined to that sort of thing? Or could it be that you've allowed... Uh, uh, your heart to be hardened and callous. We just see so much in the images of suffering and injustice and sin in the world that it's like we really can't do anything about it. So we just enjoy the benefits ourselves without being moved by those that do not know Jesus. Or could it be a reluctant will that has just never been willing to just lay your life on the altar for whatever God would choose to do with it. Following your own plans and aspirations for what you think that ministry ought to work out, putting a geographic restriction where you feel that God is calling you to serve. What do you get? How do you respond? What do you have? What do you see? What do you give? You see, they're all answered by the fourth question. How much do you love? For how can you say the love of God is in you and close your heart to those in need of what you have? Will you bow with me in prayer? Father, how thankful we are that you blessed us so richly to be in a place where most of us have been hearing the gospel all of our lives that we have the privilege of knowing you. And thank you, Lord, for choosing us to serve you, to be those that extend your kingdom and lift you up before a lost world and minister to the needs of our world. But Lord, I pray today that you would stir our hearts with maybe a new perspective on what you've commanded us to do, that we would open our eyes, we would lift up our eyes and look on a lost world, the fields, that are ripe for harvest, the peoples that you died to save and that you love, and that we would respond to your command to love others, to love each other, to love that world, to love you with all our heart with such a passion that your heart and your desire for that love to be seen in a lost world would be manifested through our lives and our commitment. And Lord, we just pray that we would listen to this voice, the stirring of your Holy Spirit, and be responsive to what you're saying to us today in Jesus' name.